Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to continue our series, Are We Living in the Last Days? I, I want to share with you something tonight. Uh, last time I spoke on this, which was two weeks ago, and we began the, uh, the journey of talking about the last days, I went home, and the news story the next morning when I got up was that Israel had attacked Iran with a cyber attack and thwarted their computers on their nuclear program. And that happened the night we were talking about the last days. Isn't that interesting? Because the news today is uh, biblical prophecy. The Bible is about 25 to 30 percent prophetic. Uh, the prophetic word, many of the prophecies in the Bible, of course, have already been fulfilled and came to pass. What I want to do tonight is look at the veracity of biblical prophecy. Now, why I want to do this is because you and I, and I want you to listen very closely tonight, we don't want to get trapped on this earth during the Great Tribulation. How many of you want to go on the first load? Okay. I'm, I'm a first load believer. The Bible says that many will be ensnared. The word snare means a trap. If you have a snare for an animal, it's a trap. Now, here is the ramifications of this. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you miss the rapture, there is nowhere to run. You say, well, I'll run here. I'll, I'll go to the mountains. I'll, I'll go to uh, this place or that place. No, this is going to happen with all people all over the earth. There is no place to run, and the Bible's very clear that's what's going to happen. Now, what you and I need to know is that we have our heart right with God, that we're going to be ready when Jesus Christ comes in the rapture and catches us away. So I did a little research. Hugh Ross, who is a Canadian astrophysicist, he, he believes about uh, 2,500 prophecies appear in the Bible, and he thinks about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled with no errors. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the remaining prophecies will be unfolding in the days to come. And I believe, this is my personal belief, that if you're a young person here, you're going to see that. And you're going to be the generation that will not ever die. Uh, that sounds good to me. I'd like to be the generation that doesn't die. I'd, I'd rather go in the air than in the hearse. But if I go in the hearse, that's okay too. As long as I know Jesus, it's going to be all right. So I want to give you some prophecies just to consider so that we can see the last day prophecies are right and true because of prophecies in the past. So sometime before 500 B.C., the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25-26. He further predicted that the Messiah would be cut off or killed and not for himself, and that this event would take place prior to the second destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we know it's documented that these prophecies were fulfilled, and the restoration of Jerusalem was issued by uh, King Artaxerxes to the Hebrew priest Ezra in 458 uh, B.C., and then 483 years later, the ministry of Jesus began in Galilee, 
We know that he was crucified, and uh, in 70 AD, the destruction came from uh, Titus, and they tore down Jerusalem, and Jesus predicted that, prophesied it. He said, there will not be one stone left on another in this city, on this Temple Mount, and it was absolutely true. Now, here's the probability of fulfillment. It was one in one million that that would occur. So here's another one, 720 B.C., the prophet Micah said a tiny village by the name of Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Israel's Messiah, and that fulfillment was, uh, that prophecy was fulfilled, the birth of Jesus, and that probability of fulfillment was one in one million. The 5th century B.C., a prophet named Zechariah declared that the Messiah would be betrayed for the price of a slave, and we know that was what, 30 pieces of silver according to Jewish law and the money would be used for a burial ground for the, the the poor foreigners or the strangers around Jerusalem and we also know that uh, Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver he went out and hung himself and the uh, Jewish leaders took that money and they bought a piece of ground for what to bury those people as uh, Zachariah declared the probability of that is one in one trillion. 400 years before the crucifixion was invented, both Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depicted that mode of execution. They said the body would be pierced, none of the bones would be broken, contrary to customary procedure in cases of crucifixion. Historians and New Testament writers say that that happened exactly the way it was prophesied. The probability of fulfillment is one in uh, one in 100 trillion that that would be possible. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy uh, the Babylonian Empire, subdue Egypt with the rest of the known world in that area. This same man, said Isaiah, would decide to let the Jewish exiles uh, in his territory go free without any payment of ransom. Matter of fact, he gave them money to go back to rebuild their nation. Isaiah made the prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. Now, this is what's amazing. Isaiah called him by name before he was ever born 150 years before. Is that amazing to you? Now, someone didn't go to Mr. and Mrs. Cyrus and say, Now, when you have the baby, you need to name him Cyrus. 150 years before the guy was ever born, God called him by his name and said, this is what you will do. And it happened exactly the way that it was prophesied. Now, the probability of fulfillment of that is one in ten quadrillion. Now, I don't know about you, but this is amazing because you need to know the veracity of prophecy. Uh, the prophecies of Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Jesus. If we're told the Jewish nation, and we're going to talk about this here in a minute, going into bondage into Babylon and Rome. The Babylonian bondage time frame was predicted to be, before it ever happened, 70 years. We know in 70 years they were released to go back home. It was also prophesied the Jews would be scattered among the nations, that one day they would return to the land of Palestine to reestablish themselves as a second time as a nation. The probability of that happening, and it took about 3,500 years through that prophetic time frame, is one in one sextillion for a nation to come back 
that was destroyed and come back and be in their homeland and become a nation again. So, the veracity of biblical prophecy is unprecedented. It is so far beyond any kind of uh, trickery or uh, maybe probability that, well, that might could happen. There is no way that this could happen without Almighty God orchestrating every bit of biblical prophecy. Somebody say amen. amen. So when you say or you hear, well, the Bible is not an accurate book or there's errancy in the Bible, then I want you to know God has a perfect track record. Not one thing he ever said would happen was awry. Everything he said was going to happen absolutely happened just the way he said. So when we read there's going to be a rapture, how many of you believe there will be a rapture? Yeah, I'm believing that. Now, when's that going to happen? You know, I don't know. It could be 10 years. It could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years. I don't think it will be then. But uh, So we can trust the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is absolutely Scripture that is fulfilled. Now, in every chapter of Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians, this is uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he mentions the rapture of the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm going to just take you a little journey here. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, this is important. He delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Well, you know what? If the Lord's going to come with his saints, his saints had to get with him. And so there's going to be a day he's going to gather us together. Now, this is chapter 4. In chapter 4, this is one of the most definitive scriptures about the rapture. So Paul is telling us that there's going to be a catching away, a rapture. So this is verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, isn't it a great deal of hope to know that your loved ones who have died will live again if they know Jesus? If you've ever lost a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, a husband, or wife, if they were believers, guess what's going to happen? You're going to see them again. You're going to be with them again. Now, I want you to know that that's great comfort, and that's what he's doing here. He says, we have that hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep or those who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort, comfort one another with these words. Now, that's a comfort, isn't it? To know that one day the dead in Christ is going to rise and they're going to rise first. So, so this is the sequence that Paul gives us. So when Jesus Christ comes for the rapture, not the second coming when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, but the rapture. So the rapture is what? 
the dead in Christ is going to rise first, so the graves are going to open. Their spirits are already with the Lord, but they're going to have a glorified body. Now, how fast does that happen? The Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye, and if I'm not mistaken, that word is symbolic of the word that we get atomic from. How fast is something that's uh, that fast? They, they say it's less than one thousandth of a second. In the twinkling of an eye, how fast can you blink your eye? Pretty fast. And so what's going to happen? The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then all of a sudden we who are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together with them. Who are we going to meet Jesus? In the air are the clouds. So we're going to meet him in the clouds, in the air. My personal belief is this. It's going to happen before the great tribulation, and we're going to go with him in the air, and we're going to be with him while he rains down the wrath of God on this planet and all the unbelievers that have rejected him. How many of you know there's a payday someday? And so if, if you're in rebellion against God, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you do not want to go through this horrific time. Will there be people saved through the Great Tribulation? The Bible says yes, because there's a group of people. The question is asked, who are these? The answer is these are those who've made their robes white uh, in the, the tribulation by the blood of the Lamb and who did not take his mark or his name. And, uh, of course, they were martyred for that, but they end up in heaven. That's why I always say I want to go on the first load. Uh, I don't want to go through that. I don't want my family to go through that. So here he's given us this very vivid description of what's going to happen. Now, if you have your Bible, go to Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, he begins to continue this thought. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So the Bible says we can escape the wrath of God, but if you don't know Jesus, what's going to happen? You will not escape the wrath of God. You know, I'm not here to scare you, but how many of you know a little godly fear is pretty good for everybody? But really, what he's talking about is very comforting and very positive because he tells us that we're not really made for the wrath of God, but those who've rejected Jesus Christ are going to experience the wrath of God. So they will not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, he says we're not walking in darkness. What are we doing? We're walking in the light. We have the revelation. We know what's going to happen. We don't know the moment or the day, but he says we can know the time and the season. So I know that seasons, according to the weatherman, happen at a certain day at a certain time. Spring begins at this day, this time. Summer begins at this day, this time. It's, you know, it's all with the rotation of the sun and where it's positioned on the earth. But I know this, we can know the season, we can know the time. Verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and as the helmet of hope of salvation, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, encourage one another, just as you are also doing. So look at verse 9. Everybody say 9. He says, for God did not appoint us to wrath. So if it's the wrath of God, the end of chapter 6, Revelation, they said, hide us from his face, for the wrath of the Lamb has come. So if we're not appointed to wrath, then it's good news, isn't it? We're not appointed to wrath. We get to escape the wrath of God because we're going to go be with Jesus. And what are we going to do during the seven years of the Great Tribulation? Well, I believe we're going to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to Revelation chapter 19. So when someone gets married, it's a big deal, right? I mean, there's, there's all kind of, you know, uh, uh, food and, and celebration. So we're going to celebrate with the Lord. Now listen to what he's saying here. He says, we should know the seasons. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Labor pains upon a pregnant woman. That's going to be one of the signs. Now, we're not talking about a literal pregnant woman. I, I mean, my daughter-in-law has been pregnant for nine months, and we had a baby last Tuesday but he's, he's talking about the earth. So, so what is volcanoes erupting? What, what is earthquakes? What is weird weather? What is wars and rumors of wars? Uh, wh- what are some of the signs in the solar system? What is that? Well, according to scriptures, labor pains. And we're seeing those even right now. But the closer it gets to the coming of the Lord, what happens? The labor pains increase. They get closer together and they become more, uh, <laughs> ladies, you have to help me here. I don't know anything about it. They become more intense, right? I, I'm not going to tell you some of my labor pain stories with Carrie, so uh, I'll keep you from that. He says, for those in darkness, it will overtake them because they are in darkness and they will not escape. Most of the world, now listen closely, most of the world is not looking for the coming of Jesus. Most of the world is not looking for the coming of Jesus. You and I need to be looking for the coming of Jesus. We need to be looking, and how, how do we look? We, we get right, and, and we, we walk this out every day. Uh, is anybody perfect here? No, absolutely nobody's perfect here. But as we try to live the best life we can uh, in Christ, our hope and our trust is in Him, then we are looking for that escape, and not being appointed to wrath, as Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. Now, he says about you, he says, but you're not in darkness, you're in the day and in the light. So you're not groping through the darkness, you have this revelatory idea that Jesus is going to come, he's going to catch away believers, and he's going to catch them, and he's going to take them to heaven with him. In Luke 21, I want to just go off verse 9 here for a minute. In verse 36, he says, Pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming upon the earth. So what did he say? Not that you're going to endure them, you're going to what? Escape them. That's the word of the Lord. Now there's two things here. We've we got to really get down in our spirit because this is what Jesus said. He said this beginning and this event is going to be like two things. The days of Noah... And the days of who? Lot. Noah and Lot. 
So let's go back. If it's going to be like the days of Noah and Lot, let's go back and see what kind of day it was when Noah and Lot lived. So, someone put it this way. Before the deluge, before the rain came, before the fountains of the earth was broken up, God, in the 600 year of Noah, had his family get on the ark, and God shut the door. So here Noah is and his family. They get on the ark because God's fixing to do what? He's fixing to destroy the earth because of sin and violence, because of rebellion. And we know there was a a huge flood, Noah and the ark. But he put Noah in the ark, shut the door before the flood came. Someone put it this way. There wasn't a raindrop that fell on Noah's head. Well, that's... uh, Raindrops keep falling. (laughs) Most of you don't know who B.J. Thomas is, do you? So anyway, so did he get Noah in a place of protection before the flood? And the answer is what? Yes. Let me go back just a little bit further here. Not only did he get Noah in the ark before it rained, but there was an ancestor of Noah, a guy by the name of Enoch. And before that destruction came through the universal flood, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not. Boom, he's gone. He didn't die. God just took him. You know what that tells us? That there was a a mini rapture (laughs) before God destroyed the earth by water. Let me tell you what God said. He said, if you want to know what I'm going to do, look what I've done. He said... I'm going to reveal to you the ending from the beginning. So if you want to know what I'm going to do, he said, you look at what I've done, and it will give you an indication what I'm going to do. So Noah got on the ark, his family's safe, they got through the flood, come out on the other side. Hallelujah. That's why you and I are here. Do you know we're all 30-second cousins? (laughs) We all came from one family. Hey, cuz, I don't care what color you are, where you live, we're all cousins. We're not kissing cousins, but we're cousins, okay? Okay, as the days of Lot, what was it like in the days of Lot? Well, there's two things that are very similar. Both of the worlds that they lived in was very violent. It was very sinful. It was horrible. Now, Lot, he left his uh, uncle Abraham, his aunt Sarah. He went to the city of the plains, and he settled in a place where there were two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever heard of those cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities are so sinful and fallen and corrupt that God's going to destroy the cities. But before he destroys the cities, there is a righteous man by the name of Lot that God's going to get him out of the city before he destroys it. Now, if you remember, there's two angels that go to Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot out of those cities. Now let me tell you how bad those cities are. When the angels appear, and angels can take on a human form like us, and they go into the city, you know what the inhabitants of that city want to do? They want to have sex with those uh, angels. Now that's how fallen this world is getting to be. And so the angels tell Lot, You need to leave the city. You need to get out because God's going to rain 
hell, fire, and brimstone on these cities. They're going to be destroyed, but I've got to get you out of here before that happens. There is this direct communication. The angel told Lot, he says, I can do nothing until you leave. I can't do anything until you get out of here. And once he got out of the city, all the family didn't go. His son-in-laws didn't go. And his wife looked back. But him and his daughters got outside the city. They escaped the city. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Total destruction came on those cities. So when Jesus said it's going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, then we have to go back and look at that. So both of them escaped before God brought judgment. And listen, I believe that as believers in our time, this age of grace, we're going to escape through the rapture and we're going to go with, be with Jesus before that great and terrible day of what we call that seven-year great tribulation. Now, you may not believe that. It's not a heaven or hell issue. But if you want to stay here, that's fine. I'm going. I'm going to try to get out of here. And the only way I get out of here is what? Through Jesus Christ. There's no escape. Now, I, I want to give you some of the signs or the markers of the last days. And I'm just going to give you two tonight. So... I want you to think about just two. Here's the first one. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Did you get it? We're going to be gathered together to Him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sets as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So I don't want to take the second one, just the first one. That day will not come until what happens first? There will be a falling away. That word falling away is the word apostasia, and it is the first marker or the first sign I want to share with you tonight. So it means defection, apostasy, or forsaking the truth. Are we living in a day that people have forsaken the truth? The answer is yes. And it was prophesied, predicted, and written that this would happen. First uh, Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaks expressly or expressly is saying that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, listen, according to this verse, this is not coming from the outside in. It's coming from the inside out. Notice the word doctrine. Every church ought to have doctrine. Doctrine is good as long as it's the right doctrine that's based on the Word of God. Now, notice what he says here. He says, the Holy Spirit is saying very clearly that in the last days, some will depart from the faith. Let me tell you, I can't depart from this room unless I have been in this room. I can't depart from the faith unless at one time I was in the faith. Now, that may mess you up tonight, but I'm just saying this is pretty simple. I'll take Matt's point from this morning. 
this is not this complicated, right? If you and I can understand it, how many of you know anybody can get it? So, he said, some will what? They will depart from the faith. And what's going to happen? There are deceiving spirits in this world that's going to move them away from the foundation of the truth and biblical truth. Folks, I'd like to tell you that's coming. It's not coming. It's already here. And I'm going to prove it to you here in just a moment. So he says, it is clearly spoken by the Holy Spirit that they are going to depart from the faith. And notice the doctrine. The doctrine is going to be a doctrine that evil spirits have seduced them away from the truth to preach and teach things that are not biblically sound. Um, if, if you'd allow me, I want to go on a little journey here, and um, I, I think it's worth our while. In the book, Reforming Fundamentalism by George Marsden, he says 85% of the students in one of the, America's largest evangelical seminaries stated that they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Did I read that right? 85%? Now, now these are not people on the street. These are people in a Bible college saying they don't believe the Bible's true. What would you be doing going to a seminary if you don't believe the Bible is true? My, my son Aaron... Uh, Carrie and I thought we were doing a good thing. We, we sent him to a Bible Christian college. And I want to tell you, they almost messed him up. This is at a biblical, quote, Christian college. Today we have ministers and pastors that are leaving seminaries and Bible colleges, going into churches today and messing churches up completely because they're teaching the wrong doctrine. You say, well, why do you say that? Because the Bible predicted it, right? The Bible says it's going to happen, and it's happening. So here is something that I've been aware of. In 1987, the sociologist Jeffrey Hayden, um, he sent out a poll, not to congregants, but to pastors and Christian leaders. So he sends a poll out to 10,000. So this is a study he was doing. He sends a poll out to 10,000 Christian leaders and about 7,400, something like that, they replied. Not everybody replied, but about 7,400 replied back to him. Now, this is some of the statistics, and I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just going to read what he found out when he did this survey. So, this is the question. Do you believe the Scriptures are inspired in the Word of God? 95% of Episcopalians said no. 87% of Methodists said no, 82% of Presbyterians said no, 77% of American Lutherans said no, 67% of American Baptists said no. Now, understand, why are they forthcoming? Because he's not asking for their name and their phone number and their address. So they can, they can fill this out you know, anonymously and nobody knows. So in that uh, survey, it, it's absolutely amazing. Here's another question. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Over 50% of the ministers said no. So here's the breakdown. American Lutherans, 19% said he was not born of a virgin. American Baptists, 34%. Episcopalians, 44%. Presbyterians, 49%. Methodists, 60%. Said that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. 
Not my numbers, I'm just telling you this is, this is what he found out. Number three, was Jesus the Son of God? 80% of the ministers said no. Number four, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus? Over 30%, uh, 36% said no. American Lutherans, 13% said no. Presbyterians, 30% said no. American Baptists, 33% said no. Episcopalians, 35% said no. Methodists, 51% said no. They don't believe in a physical resurrection. Listen, if you don't believe in those things, you have lost your way. You have lost the fundamental foundation rock of Scripture. I'm going to repeat myself because some of you have heard some of this before, but some of you haven't. A lady came to our church several years ago, and uh, I didn't know her. I introduced myself to her. She was in the service a few times, and I was beginning to know her. And I said, where do you live? She said, I live in Duncan, and she told me the church she went to. I'm not going to tell you what church it is, but uh, I said, why are you here? And she told me the story. She said, well, I began to listen to my pastor preach, and some of the things he was preaching and saying from the pulpit, I didn't quite understand. It was a little different for me. And so I went up and asked him a point-blank question one Sunday, and this was the question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven? And she said this was his answer to me. That's the way we've chosen the Muslims have chosen to get to heaven this way. The Buddhists have chosen to get to heaven this way. And, and these people have chosen to get to heaven this way. Do you know that completely contradicts the words of Jesus? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is John chapter 14. He said, no one comes to the Father except by me or what? Through me. There's no way you're going to get to heaven because John 14 is about heaven, right? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also in my Father's house or many mansions. And, and you know, he, he's talking about heaven. And he says, I'm the way. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to go through me. And so she said, I was shocked that my pastor did not believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to get to heaven. That, you know, the Muslims get to heaven through one way, the Buddhists get there. No, my friends, that is not what Scripture says. And she said, I decided I was going to leave because I'm not going to sit under that teaching. And uh, she said, I've been there longer than the preacher. How many of you know what that means? Preachers come and go. And she said, I was so concerned, I went to some of my friends that went to the same church and said, our pastor doesn't even believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And she says, now I'm more shocked at their reaction. Listen closely. She said, well, we've always been this, the denomination. And let me tell you what happens. And it's happening right now today. People are putting their church, their denomination, their flavor ahead of the truth of the Word of God. We can't do that. We have to believe what the Word of God says, and His Word is what? Truth. And so that is something that we have to be concerned about. Daniel C. Dennett and Linda Lascola, they wrote an article, this from the Center of Cognitive Studies from Tufts University, this is in 2010, Preachers Who Are Not Believers. Say that with me. Preachers Who Are Not Believers. So this is their study. 
Now, I have to say this is from a perspective of an atheistic agenda because these people aren't believers who are doing it, so they're happy to find preachers who are not believers, right? So this is their report. So they're looking at uh, about five different uh, case studies, and I just want to share them with you. So Wes is a Methodist. He said he lost his confidence in the Bible while attending a liberal Christian college and seminary. Yes, huh? I went to college thinking Adam and Eve were real people. Now he no longer believes that God exists, doesn't believe Adam and Eve are real people, and that uh, he, he says, I, I use God as a word, and it's kind of a poetry thing that's written for human beings. His church members do not know that he's an atheist, but he explains that they are somewhat liberal themselves. His ministerial colleges uh, uh, colleagues are even more liberal we, we we're done by a de uh, you know through this mythology thing he says they don't believe jesus rose from the dead literally they don't believe jesus was born of a virgin they don't believe all those things that would cause a big stir in their churches and of course he doesn't either but he's still there preaching but he doesn't believe what he preaches so rick a campus uh, minister he says um, he was an ag agnostic in college he lost all of his belief by the time he graduated from seminary. He was ordained. Uh, he says, I don't force any doctrine. He says, I'm, I'm not going to make it in a conventional church. He knew he would not go to a church and teach his own theological views. He did not believe in the doctrine uh, of the Christian faith. He says, I don't believe in the traditional things. He does not believe in all this creedal stuff, he says, about the incarnation of Christ, the need for salvation, but he said, I remained in the ministry anyway. He says, these are my people. This is the context in which I work. These are the people that I know. In the pulpit, he says, I talk if, as if I believe, because as long as you're talking about God and Jesus in the Bible, that's what they want to hear. You're just phrasing it in a way that makes sense to them. He doesn't like to be called an atheist, but he says, if not believing in a supernatural theistic God is what distinguishes an atheist, then I'm one too. Now, now, this is Daryl. Daryl's a Presbyterian. And he says, I remain in the ministry because of financial reasons. It is how he provides for his family. He's openly espoused his beliefs. I may be burning bridges in terms of my ability to earn living in this way. I reject the virgin birth. I reject substitutionary atonement. I reject the divinity of Jesus. I reject heaven. I reject hell. And I am not alone. Is this making shutters go up down your spine? Adam, ministers in the Church of Christ. That's one of the most conservative churches in America. And, of course, not everybody's like any of these people, but um, he, he began to lose all of his theological confidence. After reading a series of books, he became convinced that atheists have better arguments than believers. He moved into a fully atheistic mode, yet he continues to lead the church. He says, I handle my job on Sunday morning. I see it as play acting. I see myself as taking on the role of a believer in a worship service, performing. He says, I'm an atheistic agnostic. I stay in the ministry because I like the people and I need the job. Isn't that sad? This is John. John's a Southern Baptist minister. He was attracted to Christianity. He's a religion of love. He pursued Christianity. It brought me to the point of not believing in God, though. He says, I didn't plan to become an atheist. I didn't even want to become an atheist. I just had no choice, if I'm being honest with myself. 
He's clearly not being honest with his church members. He rejects his belief in God. All Christian truths that, that, that are claimed he doesn't believe. He's a determined atheist. Once again, his unbelieving uh, ministry, he admits he stays in the ministry because of finances. He said he even names his price. He said if someone offered me $200,000, I'd turn my notice in this week, and it would be my last Sunday because now I can pay off everything. You know what the Bible calls these people? Hirelings. Because they're doing it for what? They're doing it for money. So these are very disturbing things. So does the Bible talk about this? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, this is sobering, isn't it? It's very sobering. Second John chapter 7, I mean, verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver, the Antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I've got to take a breath here because this is overwhelming me too. In a recent survey by Barna, this is in 2020, he said 48% of United States adults have adopted a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. Believing that a person is generally good, if that person is good, and does, not, uh, and does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. So, almost half of American adults believe that if you can just be good enough, you can earn a place in heaven. How many of you know you can't be that good? Because the Bible says that your righteousness and my righteousness is filthy rags. But yet, there are 35%, closely one-third of American adults, continue to embrace the biblical view that salvation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, that's good news. About a third of, of, of adults believe that the only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. But we can't be saved by saying, I'm just going to be a good person. You can't be that good. And I can't be that good. You know what? If you would be honest with yourself tonight, and I'd be honest with myself, we know we can't be that good. Look at your neighbor. They're not that good. But we can be good through Jesus, right? Because he forgives us our sins, and through his shed blood, he covers our sins, and he puts them away from us. Now, I'm going to read just a couple of more scriptures, and we're going to close this out tonight. Y'all getting anything out of this tonight? So this is Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 10. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? 
Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause delivery, shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. Isaiah is doing two things. This is twofold. Please listen. He is prophesying that the nation of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. But it's also a prophecy to give them hope that he's going to bring them home again. So after 70 years, you know what he did? He brings them back and reestablishes back in their homeland. The second sign and the second marker I want to give you tonight is the rebirth of Israel. Say that with me. The rebirth of Israel. So the first one is what? It's the falling away. The second one is the rebirth of Israel. On May the 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel, and Harry Truman, who was the president in 1948, recognized that new Israeli nation on the same day. So let me go back and read this again. This is Isaiah 66. Shall a nation be born at once? Shall a nation be birthed in a day? The answer is what? Absolutely yes. How can a nation, all of a sudden it's not a nation, in one day become a nation? I just read to you, when the British gave up control of Palestine, David Ben-Gurion said, now we are a nation, and the United States on the same day recognized Israel as a nation. It had never, ever been done in human history that a nation quit being a nation in their homeland, sovereign. Listen, when they went into Babylonian captivity, from the time that the nation was established, they had never been a sovereign nation for almost 3,500 years. 3,500 years, and all of a sudden, boom, they're a nation. Now listen to this, Jeremiah 31, 7 through 10. Thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind, the lame, the woman with child, the one who uh, labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight day in which they shall not stumble, for I am the father to Israel." Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O what? Nations, plural. This is more than just Babylon. This is what? The nations, plural. He says, from the ends of the earth, hear the word of the Lord and declare it in the isles far off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. He says, one day, 
My people are going to be all over the world, in many nations, on the, on the isles. He said they're going to be in the north country from the ends of the earth, and I'm going to call them back home. And guess what? You have seen that in your lifetime. Now, this is what Jesus said about this. He says, when you see the fig tree begin to sprout again, Israel, many times, was referred to as the fig tree. Well, it looked like the fig tree was cut down, doesn't it? Uh, We're talking about thousands of years now. They were not a nation. They didn't have control of their own land. You know, it was the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians, it was the Medes, it was the Persians, it was the Greeks, it was the Romans. And in 70 A.D., when Titus came to Jerusalem and he destroyed Jerusalem, most people say about a million Jews died in that Roman campaign, a million, through Palestine. And the last bastion, really, of that Jewish revolt was at Masada. Has anybody heard of Masada? I actually have been on top of Masada. Uh, Let me tell you an interesting story. Some of you have heard me say this. So I'm at Masada with a group of people, and there are some soldiers that are there, the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, Everyone who is uh, getting out of high school is required, whether they're male or female, to join the Israeli forces. You don't have a choice. It's not a draft. You just got to go. So every young man, every young woman is required to be in the Israeli army. And you have to serve a term. So there is this Israeli commander, and he's got these soldiers up there. And I'm telling you what, he's the coach talking to the team. And he brought them to Masada to share with them, this is where we made the last stand when the Romans occupied and tried to overtake us. And they did. But they said, I, I was with uh, someone who really was a lot wiser than me on this. They said when they began to excavate Masada, there was a synagogue at Masada where the Jews would gather to worship. And they knew that they were going to die because the Romans had built a causeway up into that fortified place. And they finally took the city and most people were killed or they committed suicide. But when they dug underneath the synagogue, the scripture that they found that those Jews buried under the synagogue was out of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Where God is speaking to Ezekiel and he said, Son of man, can these bones live again? And you know what Ezekiel said? Probably would say what we say. God, I don't know. And you know what God said to Ezekiel? He said, prophesy to him. What do I say? You speak the word of God. The Bible said all of a sudden the bones began to get together. They were disjointed. Skull over here, leg bone over there, finger over there, toe over there. You know, who who knows who belongs to who, right? Them bones, them bones, right? Oh, them dry bones. But as he began to speak the word of the Lord to him, the Bible says that bone came to bone. They, you know, I guess there was a foot walking around and said, where's the rest of me? <laughs> so, so the bones, they get together and, and they, they, you know, they, they, they you know, are a complete skeleton. And then he said, then the, the flesh and the muscle and the sinew and the skin uh, begin to come upon these bones, but yet they're still lifeless. And 
He said, Son of man, prophesy to the wind that the wind, the pneuma of God, would blow into these bodies. And they stood up as a mighty army. You know what's happening here? That which seems like it's way past help, beyond help, God's able to resurrect it up. And even in your life today, and and maybe even tonight, you, you may be in a situation tonight, you think, how in the world could I ever, ever recover or get past this or get through this? How many of you know God's got a way to get you through it? And He can help you, make you an overcomer and victorious. Now, let me give you one line. The Lord said, when you see that fig tree begin to bud and blossom again, He said, no, the end is close, and this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So let me give you something to think about as you go home. You may not want to think about it, but think about it anyway. I do not know how long a generation is. The Bible talks about different, you know, generations. Uh, You know, we live to be 70, and by strength, the psalmist says, we can live to be 80. So let's just take a random number by 80, okay? We have people here that are 80 and beyond. So let's just take a random number 80. In 1948, Israel, on May the 14th, became a nation. If a generation is 80 years old, 80 years from 1948 is the year 2028. It'll be the year 2028. I'm not predicting anything. I'm just going to make you think. Are you thinking? We're in 2021 now. 2028 is seven years from today. Or January. Is Jesus coming back? Absolutely. Now before he comes and puts his face, his feet on the Mount of Olives and and the world sees his face. The next thing you and I are looking for is the catching away of believers of the church. We call it the rapture. The Bible says that two people be laying in one bed. One taken, one left. You can't get saved by somebody else's salvation. If your wife is a Christian, you're not going to go because she's a Christian. The only way you're going to go is because you're a Christian. There'll be two working out in the field. One taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. We updated that last time. Two women will be shopping at Walmart. (laughs) One taken, one left. So, Pastor, is everybody going to get raptured? Only those who believe in Jesus Christ. Only those who are born again. So now, I I, want to give you some great comfort tonight. I I don't want to scare you. Because when Paul and Jesus and Peter talk about these issues, there's always this word that keeps coming up. He says, comfort one another with these words. So don't be afraid of all of this that's going to come on the earth. He says, no. Comfort one another with these words. You're not going to go through that horrible time. Now, that doesn't mean there's not tribulation today right now. That doesn't mean the church is not going to be persecuted. 
That doesn't mean that there's not going to be issues that we face because the church has always faced those from the first century all the way till today. When I hear people say, well, the church has not gone through any tribulation, listen, you ought to be living in Iran or China or Russia. They're experiencing some tribulation right now. It's not the great tribulation. It's not the wrath of God, but I'll guarantee it's the wrath of man and Satan trying to snuff out the Word of God and the people of God. So are people going to go through some things? The Bible says absolutely yes. But we're not going to experience, now this is my personal opinion, we're not going to experience the wrath of God. Now, we just sing tonight, you're a good, good father. Did you hear that, what we say? You're a good, good father. So I'm going to go to my kids and my grandkids and say, kids, I love you, but, but let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to have to live through seven years of hell. And uh, there's going to be asteroids hitting the earth, and uh, there's going to be half of the entire population of the world die. Uh, The sun's going to quit shining like it usually does. The moon's going to turn to blood. Uh, Demonic creatures are going to be leased on this planet. Uh, Most of the sea life is going to die. But I just want to comfort you with that. Feel good about that, okay? How many of you are not feeling good about that? But I'll tell you what is more comforting to me is that we serve a good, good father that's going to say, kids, time to go home. One of the saints in this church, Mary Kaiser, matter of fact, we have a granddaughter back here in the back. I was at her home one time. A lot of times I'd go and sit at her feet just to listen. She's pretty wise. She was a mother in the church, and I was a young man. One day she said, Mike, I had a dream the other night. And I said, well, Sister Kaiser, what did you dream? She said, I dreamed that I was looking across this vast pasture land, and the sheep were all out on the hillsides, and they were in the the pasture and the, the grass, and they were just grazing. And said Jesus was up on the hill and he was looking at all the sheep out there just grazing and, you know, doing what sheep do. And she said, but I looked on the horizon and there were black clouds just rolling. There was a storm coming. And she said, I looked and I saw his white robe and the wind was blowing across his robe. And you could see his robe and the fabric just whipping in the wind. And the sheep raised their heads and they looked at the black clouds that were rolling in. And said, Jesus let out a call. And said, when he did, all the sheep from the pasture came and they nestled up around his legs as close as they could get. And he walked off with them before the storm hit. That's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. So today, just need to be ready. We need to pray for our young people to be ready. We need to pray for everybody to be ready. Now, if you're here tonight and say, well, listen, I have a family and i got little kids and babies and I've got toddlers, what's going to happen to them? Well, Jesus told us what happens to them. He said, suffer the little children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Someone said this, I believe it. Heaven is full of children. Every aborted baby is going to be in the presence of the Lord. 
every child, every young child, every toddler, wherever the age of accountability is, you know, God didn't give me that revelation, but somewhere there's an age you're no longer a child, you're responsible for your own actions. But up until that time, I believe heaven is going to be filled with children and young people that have not reached the age of accountability. No matter what their parents done, no matter where they live, I believe Jesus loves the children. Matter of fact, we have a little song we sing about that, don't we? All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in His sight, right? But also, I think if we looked at hell, there'd be no children in hell. I believe they'd all be in heaven. Now for us adults, you determine if you're going to go to heaven. Jesus has already voted for you. You're casting the determining ballot here, right? The ballot you cast is going to determine where you end up in eternity. Stand with me tonight. Thank you. We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.